Jonah has a question for us. Are you grace-filled? The end. How are we doing Crossroads this morning? Doing well? We hope that you had a very, very happy Thanksgiving, and we're glad to see you here this morning. If you would take your Bibles out with me, Ian, turn to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you, under the seat in front of you. If you turn with us to page 775, and one of the things that we love to do here, if you don't have a Bible in your home, is, is we want you to take that with you as a gift from our church. So you want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word. God has revealed Himself. You can know Him through the pages of this book. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. God to bring glory to God, and so we hope that you'll take that if you don't have a Bible. Jonah, chapter 4, page 775. We're in this series, we're going we're gonna to finish the series here through Jonah, and then next we kick off a new series called Echoes of Hope. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament passages that point to uh, the first coming of Christ, the incarnation, and so we're going to be looking at that through Christmas and just an exciting time to see what the Old Testament has to say about the coming of Christ, and so we're going to be in that, and that's going to be an exciting series talking about the, the, the beauty of hope in us and for us in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know uh, how you, if you raise kids or if you're raising kids, I don't know how you work things. Uh, I, I always joke around, but I want to write a book one day called Really Raising Boys. Um, James Dobson, the, the founder of Focus on the Family, he wrote a book called Raising Boys, but he only raised one son. And I don't qualify that as an expert. I read that book. It's a good book. Uh, but I want to write one one day that's called Really Raising Boys, obviously having four sons, uh, two of which just came back this Thanksgiving from college. My second son just started college this past year. And I know some of you are thinking, Dave, you can't be that old. And you're right. I'm, I can't be. I'm not. Uh, I was 19 turning 20 when I got married. My wife couldn't resist me and begged me to marry her. And so I responded and said, well, I, I'm going to give in to this woman. I, I want to love her well. And so uh, we, we had our first son, David. At, uh, I was 21. And so we started pretty young. And uh, David now is a sophomore in college. Our second son, Caleb, just started college. And, and then our younger two, which hate to be called the younger two because they're a sophomore in high school and an eighth grader. And they don't like to be called the younger two, but they are the younger two. Uh, as, as they're growing up, what, what we've done as parents, and, and again, this isn't like uh, parental advice, we're try, still trying to figure this thing out, but, but we, as they were younger, kind of held tightly on the reins of their lives. Meaning, in our home, it was a dictatorship. They didn't have a say, especially when they were younger. If they wanted to do something, they had to ask permission, and if we said no, they had to obey. Or if we said yes, do this, they had to obey. There was a bit of mutual respect, and so when they were younger, we held the reins tightly. And as they grew, we began to loosen the reins every little bit. And eventually, what happens is we say, we'll, we'll give you freedom, but if you take that freedom and abuse it, we'll take it right back. As long as you're under our roof, we make the rules. So as they've gotten older, we've given a little bit more freedom. So when they were younger, I remember when technology first kind of came out on the scene in their worlds, and they wanted an, an Apple iPod. And so they would come, and one of the rules was they had to come, and they had to get permission for the app that they were going to download. And that way, we had some authority. We had some safeguards uh, in, their, in their iPods. And so they would come and say, hey, Dad, can I download this app? And we would check it out. 
And there was two reasons for that. First of all, we wanted to keep them accountable to what they downloaded. But we also wanted to know what was the current culture enjoying so that we could stay young and hip and up to date. And so there was a twofold purpose to that. We wanted to protect them, but we also wanted to remain on top of the game. And so I remember one time my, one of my sons came to me, and he came and said, Dad, I really want to download this, this, this app. This is an app everybody's talking about. It's got like millions of, of downloads already. And it was an app called Pocket God. And the idea of this app was this game was that you were a god over a small little island, and you could do whatever you want with the inhabitants of that island. It was a cartoon-type game, and you could do whatever you want. You could be benevolent, good, or you could be violent and vengeful, bad. So I did some research on the app. I wanted to know, what is this thing about? What is this game about? And I want to read you the iTunes description. Now, in this day, there have been literally tens of millions of downloads of this game. It, it was for a period, number one, a downloaded game on, on Apple iTunes. Listen to this description. It says, what kind of God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. On a remote island, you are the all-powerful God that rules over the primitive islanders. You can bring new life, and then you can take it away just as quickly. Play pocket God. Now, anybody here ever seen this game? Maybe you played this game. You don't have to admit that publicly if you don't want to. But I did even further research. I wanted to know, what is this exactly about? I did some research. Here's what I found. This is eye-opening. I found that there was only one way that you could actually be a benevolent God. There was only one way that you could be a good God, and it was that you gave the islanders a fishing pole. But there was a myriad, unlimited amount of ways you could be a vengeful God. You could throw them off cliffs. You can throw a rock at them and kind of bowl them down like pins. You can send a storm and, and destroy them. You can hold them under the water and drown them. You can do it everyone. A myriad, innumerable, innumerable amount of ways you could destroy the islanders, but there was only one way you could be a good, benevolent God. Isn't that the way some people view God in life? Like the God of the universe, the creator of all, some of us, we view God and we kind of view him in that vein. We view him, and maybe we don't say it, but we view him like he's just a, a vengeful God out to zap us, out to catch us when we, we're doing something wrong, out to get us in those moments in secret when we know we shouldn't be doing something. This God is a God of vengeance. Now, I want to be careful because we're, what we're not saying is God is not a God of justice. God is a God of justice. In fact, God is such a God of justice that at the end of this world, he will have the last word. He will have the last word of every person in this room. He will have the last word of every life ever lived. He will have the last word of the affairs of this earth. But that justice is wrapped in grace and mercy. We see this over and over again throughout the scripture. You see this pointedly at the cross. You don't have to look any further than the cross to see the justice of God wrapped with the mercy and grace of God. As God comes in the flesh, dies on a cross, takes sin upon himself, takes, takes advantage of the justice of the Father into the Son so that you and I don't have to have that justice, and then three days later walks out of the grave to prove that that was indeed sufficient. You don't have to look very far to see that God is a God of grace and mercy and a God of justice altogether. He's not just a vengeful, punitive God. He is a God who is faithful. He is a God who is good. He is a God who is at work. 
in an amazing, merciful way. This story really is wrapped in that idea of who God is. Remember, as we journey through this, this book of Jonah, we, we find that God is coming after Jonah. God is going after Jonah. We left off with Jonah really being angry at what God has done. Remember the beginning of the story. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the biggest, baddest city of the day. It was a capital city of Assyria. They were evil people. They were the arch enemy of Israel. And so Jonah, the successful, well-respected prophet, was asked by God, called by God, to go to Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't answer the call of God. No, he runs. He runs 2,500 miles away to a place called Tarshish. But on the way, God comes to intervene. God sends a storm on the boat that he's, he's entered. And there we see in chapter 1 the sailors responding to the goodness of God and Jonah just saying, throw me overboard. We come to chapter 2 and God has Jonah swallowed by a big fish. Remember we said last week it was a Mediterranean tuna. The chicken of the sea that was a monster of the sea swallows Jonah. Jonah is swallowed, and, and, and in the midst of the belly of the fish, he says these words. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. In chapter 3, he goes to Nineveh, and he cries out against Nineveh. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh, you're going to fall. But Nineveh doesn't fall. Why? Because Nineveh responds with repentance. And we talk about the change that happens in Nineveh. The repentance is an internal change of heart that leads to an external change of action. They take sackcloth and ashes, and they mourn over their wickedness. And we see God responding and relenting from the disaster that he said he would do to them. God responds in grace and mercy. Uh, by the way, that doesn't mean it was the end of the story for, for Nineveh. One day they were going to be destroyed. They were destroyed. We know that. And so that, that was a temporary moment. But, but it still happened. And then we picked up chapter 4 last week and we saw Jonah, the preaching prophet, now a pouting prophet. We find Jonah angry at the affairs of God. He doesn't like what God has done. What pleased God to do displeased Jonah. And Jonah is angry, and he says, take my life. I just want to die. And we end it in verse 4 with God asking a very profound question. God asks this question in verse 4. The Lord says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? Do you have the right? Are you seeing this clearly? Is this the right reason to be angry? And we said last week that God asks questions like this not because he needs information, but because he wants to lead to transformation. God is trying to touch the heart of Jonah and saying, Jonah, don't you get it? Do you really have the right to be angry in this moment? You may have a reason because it's the arch enemy of Israel, but do you have the right to be angry? We pick up the story in verse 5. I want you to see Jonah's response to God's question. T take a look with me. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it is better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah responded and said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
And then the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. By the way, that's a description many people believe of the children of the city. Some scholars believe this is an insult that he was describing the insult of the military of uh, the Jews had this insult against the military. They don't even know their right from the left hand. And God is, is speaking a language that he understands. We're not sure exactly what it means. But he says, do I not pity? Do I not have the right to pity those who I've created? Notice Jonah's reaction to the question, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's reaction is to walk out of the city and go up on a hill to the east side of the city. Now, in present day, Nineveh is actually an historical city. Today, you can go to Iraq, and this city, the, the present-day city of Nineveh, is called Mosul. I wouldn't recommend you visiting there, because Mosul is in the, in the middle of where ISIS, uh, Islamic extremism is. You remember there was a battle, years, a few years back, there was a battle for Mosul. In fact, some of the extremists actually destroyed some of the artifacts of the old city of Nineveh. It's the, the present-day city of Mosul. Not a safe place to be, but that's the city. And if you look at a topographical map of the city of Nineveh, you find on the east side this hill, this hill that overlooks the city, the old city of Nineveh. You can go there and actually see this. You can see it on a map. Jonah leaves this question unanswered. When I read this, I almost get the impression of he's almost like a, a high school student back in my day. I don't remember if you remember this or not. I don't know if it happened here as much. But on the East Coast, I remember, especially girls in high school, when you would say something they didn't want to talk to you, they, they say this expression, they would go, talk to the hand because the ear can't hear. You ever heard that before? Talk to the hand. And when the ladies say it, they would flip their hip out. Talk to the hand because the ear can't hear. Do that again. For you. Love you, love you. We're going to have to give a, a, a rating to this in a moment if I keep going, so. He's literally saying, talk to the hand. I, I hear your words, God. I hear your question, but I'm not responding. I, I see your mouth moving, God, but I'm not going to answer you. He goes and he looks over the city. Now, why does he look over the city? There are two assumptions we can make here. One is written for us. The, the other one, we can make the assumption he's up there pouting. He's sulking. He builds himself a booth. He gets under the shade. He tries to protect himself, and he's sitting there, and he's sulking. He's the, the, the preaching prophet become the pouting prophet, and he doesn't like God. But then look what it says he's doing. This is eye-opening. Take a look at the end of verse 5. It says, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Here he is taking a watching-and-see posture. And he is saying, I want to see what's going to happen to this city. Now, what just happened in the city? They responded to the message of God and repented. But yet he's waiting to see what else is going to happen. What is he hoping? He's hoping that God is going to destroy them. Now, now think about this for a moment. I don't know where you live, but maybe you're here and you live in Mansfield or Lexington, Ontario, or, or, or maybe you live in Madison or Belleville or Butler or Lucas or Shelby or Plymouth, wherever you're from. Imagine you go proclaiming the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, into your town, and the entire city turns to Christ. The entire city turns to God. How are you going to respond? You're not going to run away from the city, are you? 
No, no, instead, what you're going to do is you're going to engage them. You're going to go to them. You might set up some small groups to talk about who this God is. You might begin to have maybe even a praise team come along to teach some songs so they can learn about this God. These were people that didn't know of the covenant God. You would think that Jonah would be in the city saying, let me describe to you how great God is. Let me tell you exactly what God can do. Turn your hearts, commit your hearts to God. You would imagine he'd be in the city crying out with them. You would imagine he'd be in the middle of the city having a party with them over the change that's taken place that God has relented of the disaster. But no, instead of helping them live, he's waiting for them to die. Instead of helping them live, he's waiting for them to die. He's looking and saying, God destroyed them and expecting you, God, to destroy them. Now, up until this moment, we have looked at this series and we have said over and over again, how long will God be patient with Jonah? How long will God be patient with Jonah? I read this and I think, God, this is the moment. This is the moment you should strike him down. Zap, bam, boom, gone. Jonah, enough is enough. Man, I, I, I gave a storm, I gave a fish. I had a miraculous moment in Nineveh. Your message got across. I'm done with you, man. But in shocking patience, God takes another step toward Jonah. God continues to pursue the heart of his people. By the way, that's point one in our notes. God provides continued deliverance for his people. Jonah thought that grace had a limit, but God's grace is limitless. His capacity of grace is greater than the capacity of our sin. Even the sin of a religious arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental prophet. God's grace extends to him. And God is going to show a lesson of compassion to Jonah in this moment. God's going to do it in three forms. In one illustration that shows up in three forms. I want to look at these illustrations because they're pretty powerful. God is, God is going to get a hold of Jonah through this illustration taking up in three forms. First of all, we see the plant. The plant. First illustration we see is a plant. Take a look at verse 6. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Let's stop there for a moment. Notice the phrase, the Lord God. This is the first time that it shows up in the book of Jonah. The, the Lord God is actually a reference to the sovereignty of God. Every time it shows up in the Old Testament, almost every time, it's a reference to sovereignty. The reason for that is because it's the name Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the unspoken name, the name God gave himself. And then he says God, God is creator. The idea is that God is sovereign over his creation. That's what the idea of this, these words together means. So God is appointing this under his sovereign hand. This is God's doing. This is not just he found some tree. This is God bringing up this plant. This plant appears out of nowhere. Notice what happens. And it brings shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God causes this plant to go up. His, his shelter doesn't last. There wasn't much wood in the Middle East there where he was. And so he makes this shade booth, but it doesn't last. The shelter doesn't work, and so God provides a plant for him. God provides some comfort for Jonah. Now, th this is pretty powerful here when we read this because 
Uh, when we think of this plant, many people ask, well, what is a plant? We, we're not sure totally. The Bible doesn't tell us. The word here is generic plant. Some believe it's, it's a plant called the castor vine or shrub. It grows bigly. Some believe it was a gourd plant that grew quickly and it is able to withstand the heat of the, of the sun of the Middle East. Whatever plant this was, that's not the point. I want you to see Jonah's reaction. Whatever this plant was, I want you to see Jonah's reaction. Notice it says, he was exceedingly glad. In Hebrew, this is a, a real eye-opening term. There's two words in, in, in kind of together. It's the word simcha gadola. By the way, if you ever want to speak Hebrew, just go, you spoke in Hebrew. Sim, simcha gadola. And what it literally means, gadola is the word great or overflowing. Gadol and simcha means joy. He was overwhelmed with joy. He was filled with joy. He was happy beyond belief. Now, why is that interesting? If you've been here for this series, has there been any other moment where Jonah's been happy? Think about it. There's not a single moment where Jonah expresses happiness for what God has done. There's not a single moment where, God, where Jonah says, God, you've been so good to me. Except in this moment where God provides shade over his head. Don't miss the irony. Millions of people just turn their life in repentance to God. They, they sackcloth and ashes from the king to the commoner. And yet Jonah is happy not at that. He's happy at the comfort God brings him. Now this is going to come back in a moment. He's happy with the comfort that God is bringing him. So what does God do? God touches the place of comfort. Don't miss this. God touches the place of comfort to get a hold of Jonah's Heart. Take a look at what happens. God provides a second form of this illustration. That's the worm. There's a plant, and now we see a worm. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So God touches the place of comfort and destroys the plant by this worm. Now I want to pause here for a moment because I find great theological delight in this moment. Why? Because I read this story, and it's easy for me to think that God is the God of the sea. It's easy for me to think that God is the God of the storm. It's even easy for me to think that God is the God of the big fish. But God is also the God of the worm. From the, the greatest creature to the most insignificant, God is sovereign over them. From the, the, the greatest to the smallest, God is at work, and that should give us all hope. Because if God can use a worm, God can use me. God can use you. God can use this to fulfill his purpose. The smallest of us, the least of us, the, the, the most unworthy of us, God can use. And I love this picture. By the way, the only thing we see destroyed in the entire book of Jonah is a plant. The only thing we see destroyed is right here in chapter 4, and it's the plant to get Jonah's attention. Notice here, God is coming after Jonah. Now you would think here, and the author wants us to know as we read this, if you, if you were reading this, and, and you would pause at this moment, because the author wants us to think this should be the moment that Jonah gets it. Why? Because Jonah should identify with the, with the worm, shouldn't he? Jonah should identify with the worm. Why? Because he wants to do what the worm does. He wants to destroy Nineveh. You would think at this moment he goes, God, I get it, man. I'm a worm. <laughs> That's what I am. I, I want Nineveh to be destroyed but he doesn't respond. So God sends a third form of illustration, that is the wind. He sends the strong wind. In fact, notice the description here. It says, 
when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. Most scholars would agree this is something called the Soroka. The Soroka in the Middle East still happens. It comes off the east. And what the Soroka is, is it's, it's, a, it's a wind that causes the temperature to rise and humidity to drop. Now, I'm not a meteorologist, but meteorologists would say what ends up happening is it gets intensely hot, but then the wind kicks up and it begins to circle around wherever it is, almost like a tornado. It creates a, a form of tornado in the Middle East where there's no water. So what, is it, what does it toss around? It tosses around the sand and the rocks. So if you're in the midst of a Soroka, you, you better cover yourself. You better have a place to go into because it's intense heat now with debris flying all over the place. In fact, meteorologists would say it can cause great exhaustion, depression, and there are people in the Middle East who have lost their minds in the middle of Soroka. Notice what happens to Jonah here. Notice Jonah's response. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. He says, God, just take my life. I'm suffering. I've had it. I'm not happy with what you've done. Take my life. For the second time, he just says, Take my life, I'm finished. Now you might be here this morning and might say, Dave, how do we see God's continued deliverance in this? Think about the word appoint here. The word appoint, remember at the beginning of the series we said there are words that repeat and it's a poetic form, repetition of words. And this word appointed repeats. And it repeats five times. First of all, we see it in chapter one that God appoints a storm to get a hold of Jonah. In chapter 2, God appoints a big fish. In chapter 4, he appoints the plant, the worm, and now the storm. Five things that God appoints in this book. While God is appointing Jonah to go do a task. You know what's interesting about all five of those things? They have nothing to do with Nineveh. They have nothing to do with the people that Jonah was called to go to. No, those five things were meant to... connect to the heart of Jonah. Those five things were meant to get the attention of Jonah. Those five things were meant to call Jonah to focus on God's grace and mercy. See, these were not moments of a punitive, angry, divine vengeance. These moments of moments of discomfort were actually moments of compassion where God was trying to connect to the heart of Jonah. God was attempting to awaken Jonah to his faithfulness, to his goodness, to give a better view of his character. Now, I, I remember whenever the boys come home, uh, especially at Christmas time, sometimes we like to watch home videos. We have these old home videos when the boys were younger. And uh, I don't remember back in the day, young people, you don't know this, you carry an HD camera ready to go in your pocket. But back in the day, you had to carry this big old camera with you if you wanted to catch home video. Like you literally had to have a weight belt on to carry around the equipment to be able to, to, to film something. And the batteries alone are like 10 pounds. And so we had this camera, this old camera, and it was kind of hand-me-down, and we, we, would, we would make home videos. And we love to watch those home videos. But what the boys love to do is when we watch home videos, is they like to find embarrassing moments and pause it and then watch it in like slow motion. So it will be like, hey, you know, we're, we're here we are walking down the street, or here we are, we're going to have a race, and, and dad trips and falls. 
And, and then what they do is say, let's go back, let's go, 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 go back. And they'll rewind it. And they'll say, pause it right there. And it's always this moment of like, yeah. I mean, just odd moment. And we crack up over it. And, and we try to find the next person. That's great family time, making fun of each other. It's great. And they love to pause it and say, let's look at the details of this moment together. And we laugh together. In some ways, that's what God is doing to Jonah. He's slowing Jonah down. He's saying, Jonah, stop for a moment. See what I'm trying to do. See my compassion for you. See my grace toward you. Yeah, Nineveh is a picture of what I'm trying to do in you, Jonah. I'm trying to rescue you. I'm coming at you pay attention to what I'm doing. That leads to this question. God comes again, verse 9, and says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? God asks you it again, but adds the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night, and should not I pity Nineveh that great city. This is point two in our notes. The more I am overwhelmed by God's compassion toward me, the more I should be compelled to accomplish the mission of God through me. And that's a big sentence. Let me repeat that. The more I am overwhelmed by God's compassion toward me, the more I should be compelled to accomplish the mission of God through me. When I get that God has been compassionate to me, I can't help but to proclaim the mission of God through me. I, I, I gotta speak about it. I gotta talk about what God has done for me. And that's the place where God wants to bring Jonah. God says, you pity a plant that you didn't even make. Jonah's value of the plant had nothing to do with the plant, did it? G Jonah's value of the plant had to do with what it brought him. The comfort it brought him. So God is confronting that and saying, listen, you care about this plant, you're missing the point. There's something more valuable that matters. You know what I find in chapter 4? I find in chapter 4 a, a bold statement or a bold truth and a haunting question. Chapter 4 gives us what I would call a bold truth and a haunting question. The bold truth is that lost people matter to God. The haunting question is, do lost people matter to you? Do they matter to me? I believe that's the point of the book. It's, Jonah, do you see what I see? Jonah, do you experience what I experience? Jonah, do you pity the way I pity? Do you get what the world needs? And God is confronting Jonah and saying, listen, if you're not moved in the commission, then you're missing what my compassion is all about. We have a God who is a missionary God. He has a missionary heart. I mean, the cross and resurrection are proof of that, that he's willing to come to earth. He's willing to come to us, to be a missionary to us, to save us. God doesn't look at people the way many of us look at the people around us. In fact, we may even have people in our lives we would find joy in their destruction. God here confronts that. He says, Jonah, you don't care about the plant. You really don't care. You're not, it, it made you happy and you didn't do anything for it. Now, we end this story with the curtain dropping. And it just ends abruptly, doesn't it? It ends with a question. God says, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity them? It doesn't give us Jonah's response. It doesn't tell us what happens to Nineveh. It just, just kind of ends there. 
And can I tell you, I wonder if that's intentional because it turns to us and leaves the same question for you and I to answer. Does God have the right to pity the lost people around us? Now, I want to end with three observations as to why Jonah didn't get it. Why I believe Jonah still didn't get it. First of all, Jonah didn't get it because he had a superior attitude towards sinners. He had a superior attitude toward sinners. See, the root of Jonah's disobedience was a self-righteous superior attitude. He didn't see them with value. No, this plant was all about his own comfort, not the value that it presented. Now remember, Jonah was a Jew. He was from the nation of Israel. He was a prophet of the nation of Israel. Of all the people on the planet, he had more grace than anybody else. Why? Because God delivered the people of Israel. God protected the people of Israel. They had the law, the law of God, given by the hand of God. They had more grace than anyone on the planet. They understood God's character more than anybody on the planet. That's a deep, important truth. Why? Let me kind of put it in a statement. I believe this teaches us that the more religious we are, uh, the more of the revelation of God that we've received, for you and I, we have the Bible written for us, the more we know the Bible and taught the Bible, the greater the temptation to feel superior to those who don't. The greater the temptation to feel superior to those who don't. What happens is slowly, as we grow in knowledge of God, as we grow in understanding of what God has done, what happens is, and it's natural, is we begin to look at everybody else and say it's an us versus them. Well, those people out there, and those people at my work, and those people around the globe, they're, they're just, they just don't get it. And I know this is true in my own soul. I came to Christ at the young age of eight years old. I grew up in a Christian home, thankfully, who share with me these truths, and I made a commitment to Christ at eight years old. God awakened my eyes, opened my heart. And I have to battle this. Why? Because this is all I've known. And I begin to look at everybody outside these walls and say, how dare they? They're ignorant. They're idiotic. They're lost. God just... If you could just get rid of them all, it'd be easier, wouldn't it? And what happens is, this attitude comes in the church, where we begin to live as if, as if it's an us and them. And God is saying, no, 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 we should not have a superior attitude. Why? Because, because the church isn't on a mission. The mission has the church. Right? It's not just that the church has a mission we have to accomplish. It's that the mission has the church that you and I are called to not be superior, but to actually be a servant and go reach those people who are without God. For many of us, we have great intellectual minds about the Bible. We love to get information and knowledge about the Bible, but we're not doing anything to, to live it out in a world that desperately needs it. We're not going to our Ninevehs. I said last week that you can claim to have good theology intellectually, and yet have bad theology in living. Good theology is lived out. Good theology expresses itself. One of the things that's dangerous here at Crossroads, being 20-some years old, is, is we act just like a 20-some-year-old person. Oh, I know everything now. And we miss, and, and churches follow life cycles, where we begin to say, well, well, those people out there, they're the problem. No, 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 that's our mission. That's what should grip us. That should wake us up. Why do we have a city center downtown? Why do we have a campus in Shelby? Why are we looking to put these other places to grow larger by getting smaller? Why are we doing that? It's because we feel there's a mission that God has, God has gripped us by to make an impact. We're not just doing it to have humanitarian help. 
We're not just doing it because we want to help our city be a better city and a nicer town and those type of things. Oh, yes, those things are true. But we have an answer to the problem. We have an answer to the brokenness. Why is it that every Friday night we have a team that goes into the local prison and they present a crossroads service every single Friday night? Forty-some men that have been coming to our crossroads service in the prison. Why? Not because we're inferior or not because we're superior, but because a mission rips us. That what, what happens outside these walls matter. We're commissioned by God to care about it. That, that leads to the second reason we find here, and that is this, that Jonah, I believe, has an inferior grasp of the love of God. An inferior grasp of the love of God. That, that he views God's love too small. Now, I love the word here, compassion. The word compassion is the Hebrew word chus. And what it literally means is, is to be moved by pity. The heart that's moved. In fact, it's easily connected to our bowels. Remember that word splagna. This is the Old Testament version. It's, it moves in us. That's the heart of pity. It's the seat of the emotion. It moves in us and moves us to action. That's the image. Jonah had an inferior view of the love of God. Where do I get that? Take a look at what it says. This is, this is eye-opening. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity, you have compassion, you hoose the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. See, when we think of God's love, many of us have this view of God's love like it's sentimental, like it's syrupy, like it's a Hallmark movie type of love. I'm in the Hallmark season right now. One of the loving ways I, I demonstrate love to my wife is at 8 o'clock on the weekends, I hand her the remote, I look into her eyes and say, baby love, this is sacrificial love for you. I'm going to watch the game on my iPad. <laughs> and so we made this game out of my wife loves to watch those Hallmark movies, and, and here, here's the fact, they're, they're predictable. They're cheesy and predictable. And so if we're watching it with her, we as, we as the guys of the home, we, we do a couple things. We make a game out of it. We try to figure out who's going to be together and when they're going to kiss. Because it's going to happen. The wood carver, the prince, somebody, you know, right? There's always a wood carver. I don't know why that is. And uh, we view God's love kind of like that. Like it's just feeling. God just feels this for us. Can I tell you something? Get this, get this. Jonah's showing this. God's love is not based upon a feeling God has for us. God's love is based upon an action that God's willing to take for us. Big difference. Love is not just a feeling that we feel. Love is an action that we take. Notice here he says, you have pity on the plant, but you didn't do anything about it. You didn't make it grow. You didn't raise it up. You didn't cause it to come. See, labor and love go hand in hand. If you love something, you do something about it. If you say you love the world but do nothing about it, then you don't have the love of God in you. That's the picture, right? The, the scripture reveals that. God's love is a love of action. He takes a step to do something about what he loves. Love and God are intertwined. By the way, can I tell you, if you want to find out whether your love is right, the question would be, what steps do you take? If you're married, you know this to be true, right? I can look at my wife all day and night and say, I love you, I love you, baby love, I love you. She can care less. She wants, she wants action, right? She wants, me, she wants me to sit down every once in a while and watch that Hallmark movie. 
and stare in her eyes and read poetry and say, roses are red, violets are blue. When I think of you, I go, woohoo. That's what she wants. Right? That, 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 that's the, love leads to labor. Parents, you know this, right? You ever have a, a, have a baby and what is that baby? That, that baby is born. They don't send a manual. They send you home. And that baby can't do anything. Can't lift his head. Can't change his diaper. Can't feed itself. Can't wake itself up. It cries. It does nothing for us. It cries. That baby cries. He or she cries. The dependency is fully in us, but we, we love that baby. And how do we love that baby? We love that baby by laboring for that baby. We do something. That's the image here. God says, listen, do I not have the right to pity Nineveh? Do I not have the right to have compassion? My compassion is not based upon a feeling. It's based upon an action. I'm willing to go and do something about it, and you were the means by which I was going to do it. See, Jonah cared for something that cost him nothing. And that leads to the last observation, that is this, that Jonah didn't get it because he lived for an ulterior purpose. If you go back to verse 8, this statement is actually repeated three times, and it's very similar in its repetition. It says, it is better for me to die than to live. That tells us everything we need to know about how Jonah is living, right? It is better for me. Sin happens when we say it is better. It is better for me to do this than this. It is better for me to have this. It's better. When we say it is better, whatever we put at the end of the sentence defines a purpose. It is better this. For Jonah, he says it's better to live and die. Why? Because comfort was more important than commission. Folks, may it not be in our lives that comfort, our comfort, trumps our commission. Our commission to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Our commission to go and demonstrate the compassion of God in action and in love. That you and I are called to our Nineveh, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our cities. You, you and I are called to our Nineveh. At times, it's rough. It's nasty. But you and I are called to go to Nineveh on behalf of God. This is God's plan A, plan B, and plan C. And this, this book ends with that question. Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity these people that have no clue of who I am? And now you and I are left to answer that today. Do we care about the things that we see around us? What do our tears reveal? What action are we taking? In my family, we have this core value. That sounds kind of weird, but we talk about this all the time. We have these core values, things like humility always wins. And so the boys, we, we've taught them these things to say, we want you to repeat those. So they're little mantras to remind yourself. And, and one of them, we haven't done perfectly, but we, we, we encourage each other in this way. One of the statements that we make is, we want to leave people closer to Jesus than we found them. We say that to each other all the time. We say, uh, make sure when you go, you leave people closer to Jesus than you found them. And this mantra that we have that we say to each other, remind each other of our purpose. We want to leave people better than we found them. Friends, family, can I say, my prayer for us as Crossroads is that we would take the heart of God, his compassion, and that we would leave people closer to Jesus than we found them. That we would not be like Jonah, busy running away from the character of God, 
but that we would run to the commission of God. God is going to use us. And he might use this comfort to get a hold of us. But in it, it's compassion so that we would do what he's called us to do, to leave people closer to Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to end with this song that's a reminder just for a brief moment. And maybe you're here and, and you don't know Christ. We would love to talk with you, pray with you how you can know Christ. And next steps to the right as you leave, we'd love to talk. We have some people praying for you right now. Maybe you're here and you know Christ. Maybe you want to know, how, how do I share my faith? How can I respond to the Nineveh in my life? Maybe you're running from God like Jonah. Today would be the day you put the stake in the sand and say, I'm not running. I get the compassion of God toward me so that I can live out the commission of God toward others. God, I want to thank you for your word. I need this reminder. Got to get stuck in the routine or even the routine of life. Start to get so busy in my own comfort that I forget about this great commission this calling to go into the world and proclaim your gospel, the good news that you save, that you're a God of grace and mercy and yet a God of, just, uh, a God of justice who went to the cross to pay for that so that we could have life eternal. So God, I pray, I pray for us that we would understand that we would not be like Jonah, but God, that we would, we would see your compassion for our, for our community, our region. And that would motivate us to go under your commission to proclaim that truth in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our cities, that we would go proclaim your glorious name, that you are a God of compassion, a God abounding in steadfast love, a God overflowing in grace and mercy. All for your name, Jesus Christ. God, love has a name, and it's you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Let's sing this song as we end.